Hey guys, welcome back to another episode of the All Things Strength and Wellness Podcast. I'm your host as always, Robbie Burke, and we are brought to you by upmentorship.com, one of the top strength and conditioning resources available online today. This episode's guest is Franz Bosch. Franz is an international lecturer in motor learning and training theory at Fonti Sports College in the Netherlands. He has worked as a consultant and specialist for Welsh and Japanese national rugby teams and he's also worked with West Ham United Football Club. Franz is also co-author to one of the most renowned books on running, titled Running, that he co-authored with Ronald Klomp. Franz recently just released the English edition of his second book, Strength Training and Coordination. On this episode, Franz and I discussed many, many topics, including Franz's background, why Franz decided to write this book, Strength Training and Coordination, the difference between a reductionist approach versus a complex biological approach to training, muscle architecture and its influence on sprinting, can hypertrophy be detrimental to muscle architecture and thus the skill and motor control of running. We also discuss what are attractors and fluctuators, the seven attractors that drive linear and multi-directional speed, knowledge of performance versus knowledge of results and external versus internal cues, the concept of muscle slack. We also had an in-depth discussion on specificity, the components that make up specificity and training transfer. And we also discussed a constraints-based learning approach to motor learning. This was an absolutely outstanding episode, guys. And thankfully, the audio on this episode is much, much better than the audio on the last few episodes. So I hope you guys really enjoy this show. Okay, Coach Franz Boss, it's an absolute pleasure and an absolute honor to have you come on to my podcast. I really appreciate it. Just for the listeners, Franz, who might be too familiar with who you are, just uh, give us um, give us your background. Uh, thanks for having me. Um, my background is um, uh, in sports. Let's, let's talk about sports. I'm, um, I was a PE teacher. I was a professional um, coach in athletics. Um, I teach at a university for applied studies in sports. And I teach over there anything from biomechanics, anatomy, motor learning, things like that. And I'm a consultant in sports uh, for the last five years with uh, Welsh rugby and uh, a lot of other places I've been as well uh, as a consultant. And um, in that capacity, I wrote two books. One is called Running. Um, and the other one is called Strength Training and Coordination, which came out in English last year. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's where we are. And uh, I suppose, uh, I, as I said to you offline, I, I heard your interview series with Jeremy Boom, and, and the question he asked, and I like to pose it to you too, just for my own listeners, is uh, what made you want to write uh, your latest book, Strength Training and Coordination? Uh, well, there's a let's say political correct answer and there's a, a real answer the real answer is I had time on my hand mm. and uh, the political correct answer is that I always was annoyed by what was out there in the field of um, strength training or training theory uh, annoyed by the extreme simplicity of it and the lack of realism um, so in, in the introduction of my book uh, state that if you look at it, then it looks like Isaac Newton being a much more important founder of 
modern ideas about strength training and all the neurophysiologies that came after him. So I found it, it, it quite weird that in, in strength training it's all based on, on a very narrow field of science and things like anatomy, neurophysiology, motor control, motor learning are completely that out of the equation. So I thought, well, it's about time that um, I get my ideas on paper and I think that will fill up quite a gap in, in the normal way of thinking, the linear way of thinking that's out there. Yeah, in chapter one of your of your latest book, uh, Strength Training and Coordination, an Integrated Approach, and obviously in the show notes I'll, I'll put links to where people can get the book, you speak about this idea of... Um, reductionism versus you know the idea of complex biological systems and you kind of touched on it there a little bit and i know you're a fan of the work of uh i, I call him john kiley that's how well, you say keely but i i've asked john he says whatever kiley keely doesn't matter but uh, and i had john on the podcast he was actually my last episode um and obviously john has written a lot on this idea of this you know looking at strength train too as you said reductionism or classical Newtonian physics is sort of a, a dead end but maybe can you just touch on your thoughts on this? Um, like, what what point what point are you trying to get across with this idea that of 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 reductionism versus complex biological systems? If you had to kind of introduce that to someone who who never heard this before, yeah. Well, uh, I only can recommend uh, John Keeley, John Kiley, as you say, um, <laughs> uh, and, and and his way of explaining it. He does a very very good job explaining this um, difference between a simplistic system and a very complex system. Uh, they behave, behave uh, differently. They behave fundamentally different. Mm. So the, the, the big difference is that in uh, complex systems, uh, let's say the magnitude of, the, of a component is not directly linked to the magnitude of the effect. So what every uh, reductionist uh, science has done is say, okay, these are very important components in a system. And if we know how they work, we know how the system works. And that's not the case in, uh, in complex systems. And uh, that expresses itself, uh, especially when you look at uh, what I consider to be the most important uh, aspects of uh, strength training, and that's transfer. So transfer, uh, and how tra transfers occur, it, uh, it cannot be explained in a reductionist way. And a reductionist way usually is if you have better, better force production in an exercise in the gym, you will have better force production uh, in, let's say, uh, on the field. Um, in, in, a, in a, let's say, very profound way, uh, biomotor properties are reductionist concepts. Mm. And uh, what I try to do in the book is uh, say, okay, forget about those uh, concepts because they don't... Uh, they don't uh, apply in reality. There's too many other influences and too many ways of the system to be not rigid but fluid that you can make these connections. Yeah, and you touch on that in a few places in the book, also in the last chapter, uh, and in the very, very first chapter too, we spoke about, you know, we can't really separate these, these biomoral qualities, which, you know, I suppose is... Uh, like I suppose what you're really getting at is that like strength training is very left brain analytical and people want nice boxes for everything and you know you're kind of saying that listen the reality of the universe is that it's a complex biological system that has chaos in it and you're trying to obviously bring that to the forefront with training 
Um, yes, well, well if, I, if I can take one, one example, for instance, um, if you look at uh, how in classical training uh, speed is, is approached, yeah, then it's all based on, on a very simple um, physics. Physics, yeah. yeah. Uh, but if you, if you look at, at uh, all influences that could be there, and you look, for instance, at um, uh, the work of Seifert, that, uh, who's talking about uh, movement stability in running. Yeah. And stability issues can become very important. Now, and if you have uh, somebody sprinting, uh, you have vertical force production and horizontal force production. And the horizontal force production is much smaller than the vertical. In a reductionist uh, approach, you say, okay, the vertical is much bigger, so it's much more influential. Mm. If you look at stability and loss of stability, then this tiny or rather small horizontal force is making the system unstable, right? Mm -hmm. Stance lag becomes unstable intrinsically. And therefore, it might be a small force, but has a massive influence on what the system can do and what it cannot do. And therefore, you have to take all these influences to account from all directions. And you cannot say, okay, we can say these are the parameters and we leave those out, or the others. Yeah, yeah. I mean, yeah. Franz, in, in chapter two, you went a little more into the anatomy and physiology, which I'm a, yeah. ge I'm a geek, I love anatomy and physiology, and just uh, what, before we got online, I spoke about, you know, I love the way you describe the concepts of the way different muscle structures, they're designed in certain ways because they take on different roles in the body. Can you maybe get into that for the listeners, you know, parallel fibers versus uh, uh, pinate fibers, you maybe talk about, I know in, in running you spoke about monoarticular muscles versus biarticular and, and another thing I found really good, and a lot of the concepts I actually kind of knew, but it's the way you explained it, it kind of just drove home, like that's a much better way of saying that or, or kind of getting that, that thought across. For instance, this idea of when the foot hits the ground and the bioticular muscles actually isometrically contract and disperse that force into our elastic properties, and that from a energy standpoint is so much more efficient because concentric contractions are, are so much more costly. And so could you maybe get into the, I know it's a long question, maybe get into the different uh, fiber types, you know, parallel versus pinate, why they're designed the way they are, and maybe talk about this false idea of eccentric muscle contractions and stress shortening cycles. Yeah, well, that's quite an extensive question, isn't it? Um, you can take as long as you want. You yeah, well, let's do step by step, okay? So um, you have to understand what the difference is between a parallel built muscle and a pinate built muscle. Okay. With a panel muscle, there's a, an angle between the direction of the muscle fibers and the, the line of work, mm. yeah, between the attachment points. And what that basically means is this muscle is giving up uh, speed of shortening because a certain speed of shortening in the muscle fibers will result in less speed of shortening uh, between the attachment points. So these are muscles that are not really interested in, uh, let's say, working concentric, eccentric, right? Mm -hmm. And um, all these muscles that are panet built also have long elastic tendons, okay? And if you uh, take those muscles and you put them under stress, in other words, you go to high intensity movement and you look in what capacity they still can add something to a movement pattern, yeah. then that cannot be, let's say, elongating and shortening in the muscle fibers. Because that's what they're not built for. They lose their capacity very rapidly if they have to do that. And therefore, 
muscles like a hamstring, yeah, uh, the way they are built, are uh, much better at contributing something to a movement pattern, a high intensity, yeah. in an isometric fashion. And um, that means that uh, if you look, for instance, at a hamstring, that the concept that's out there, which you see in the Nordics, where they claim it's eccentric and concentric, basically is wrong. So we recently wrote a review article on hamstrings in which we have been looking at all the research that is out there. And uh, I didn't do the dirty work that I did by a co-author, a former student of mine. Mm -hmm. He went to hundreds and hundreds of research papers. And what you basically see is that uh, what it's based upon is basically flawed. So it's not a very, very uh, well-researched area in what really is happening within muscles. It's all models and the models are, are off. And um, what you then see is that uh, there is no scientific proof whatsoever that muscle fibers in running in hamstrings work eccentric and concentric. Yeah. The whole muscle gets longer and shorter. Good. In order or better, the attachment points move further apart and then closer together. Mm -hmm. But it doesn't need uh, to uh, bring you to the conclusion that muscle fibers work, are elongating and shortening. So muscle slack. And a recent, a very interesting development, muscle gearing, are concepts that you cannot calculate, but that could easily make the attachment points move further apart and then shortening again, mm -hmm. without the muscle fibers uh, lengthening or shortening. And then what you have then is to look at, okay, what's the what's the function of these muscles? Basically, the function is energy transport and elasticity, so storing elastic energy and then transporting it. And it's been very well known for more than a decade that elastic muscle activity is done under isometric contract uh, conditions. Yeah. And uh, that also is very beneficial because isometric contractions, from an energy point of view, are uh, more cost efficient than going eccentric and concentric. So, um, what should be done, and I'm not saying that I've well, went, went to the bottom of this, but there should be much more research in that area, is to really look at uh, what actually is happening within a muscle. And a stretch shortening cycle, you know, that's a, a, a concept that is way too crude to uh, really uh, cover what's really going on. Yeah, when I when I read, there's a kind of a, and I'm just paraphrasing, but there, there was a section in your book where you kind of said that, like, that it, the stretch shortening cycle is you were you kind of said I'm disappointed to consistently read that it's described as yes exactly if you look at at um, very good coaches in, in athletics and if yeah. you look at you know I was a high jump coach Olympic high jumpers if you look at uh, what we would consider to be uh, a, a good technique and a poor technique we're talking about changes and angles that are are minuscule yeah. almost you know. Any high jumper that has a knee, uh, a change of knee angle more than 20 degrees, we know he get injured uh, somewhere down the line. And the very good ones, they have very, very, let's say, uh, little, uh, let's say, um, uh, little uh, increase of the, the, the distance between the attachment points. So uh, this idea that you just can let's say, uh, elongate muscle fibers and then they will uh, contract. In, in reality, what we, what we did in, in or how we work in athletics 
good coaches don't work with that concept. Mm. You need stiffness, you know. Yeah, you actually had a you had a picture in your book where you, you showed like two guys doing hurdle jumps, and you were saying like the, yeah. the top picture was a guy who was. Uh, what was, I can't remember which was which, but one picture was showing a guy where he too much knee angle. You're like, this is a guy who has has he's not in isometric. He's not utilizing elastic properties versus a guy. Yeah, the guy, or, the guy was. Or he's, he's, he is not uh, training it in, in 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 enough precision that you would benefit from it when you're sprinting. Yeah. So any if if you see hurdle jumps like these bounding hurdle jumps, and you're on the ground just a fraction too long, you know, a good. Uh, athletic coaches now is not what we want because uh, it's not going to help us yeah absolutely yeah um, just a, a question I wanted to ask this is a question another question that I'll probably ask later um, and it's funny when I met you in Ireland uh, you know you, you spoke about how detrimental hypertrophy can be to motor coordination that, that's not my question yet just go, going off the back of the question there of the fiber arrangement, so again, parallel versus pinate. Can hypertrophy training also have a negative effect on that? Can it can it change the architecture the architecture of fiber arrangement and be then detrimental to, to those muscle fibers? Yeah, well, what's what's been proven is that uh, it can change the pendant angle yeah. of the of a muscle. Yes. If that happens, the whole coordination is completely upset. Yeah. It's, it's you have to re uh, let's say restructure the coordination. Yeah. And uh, basically, I think you can expand this to to uh, to training in, uh, as such. If you uh, if you have a training plan that is giving too much structural change too quickly, it will have a very adverse effect for coordination. Mm. And that's what hypertrophy is doing: is changing the body so rapidly. Yes, it's all those uh, refined. Uh, structures in the in the neural system to make it function properly are let's say um, not working anymore because yeah. the body is not in tune with those anymore. It's 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 funny you say that because I had this discussion now. I don't know if you've ever seen the Irish sports here hurling and Gaelic football, but hurling is a highly technical sport in terms of the skill. The skill it's a very skillful game, and I was speaking to a coach one time and. He he met, had this intuitive sense of he felt that uh, throughout the off season all the GA players just did you know typical hypertrophy strength and power blocks and stuff like that, and he would always have his guys doing some type of hurling throughout the winter. And when asked why he did this, he says, "Do you not realize that they have a completely different body from the start of training to when they come back and their coordination's all over the place?" So oh, that, yeah. that that was the first time where I was like, you know, he's hundred percent right. Like. And then when I read about the your uh, and in chapter three, which is where I want to go next, you would analyze in the sporting movement. The first time I heard the concepts of attractors and fluctuators, I didn't fully understand it. But then I read I read more about it from you and read it in a book, um, Dynamics and Skill Acquisition by Davis Bennett and and um, Davis Burton and Bennett, and they spoke about that if you if you do something like say for hypertrophy training we're talking about and it disturbs the system so much. That you can actually change your stable attractors, like you've changed the motor coordination. So I found that very fascinating. And just getting into our next question, then, can you maybe touch about what is chapter three about analyzing sport movement? And then you had these seven kind of concepts to look at that I want to ask you about. So, yeah, well, uh, the chapter is is about these attractors and fluctuations, which is fascinating, so, fascinating topic. Yeah. Um, so. Um, basically, the best way to approach it is from the degrees of freedom problem. 
Yeah. Yep. From Bern Bernstein, so, is it? Sorry. Bernstein, yeah. So uh, when you move, you got a uh, hundred and something joints that you have to control, right? And uh, how many muscles? You know, there's only already for flexing an elbow, you got three, and extending, you got one. Yeah. It's 14 options. So if you multiply all these options, you get almost an infinite possibilities for movement. Mm. And uh, what motor control is, is not uh, f uh, the problem with motor control is not finding that, that one perfect movement pattern, but uh, is having a very, very rapid way of getting rid of all the others. That's basically different, okay? So what should happen is that a number of degrees of freedom that are available are uh, disappearing very quickly. And they have to disappear by uh, parts of the system being extremely stable. So you cannot protrude it. They always go back to that same position. And those things are attractors. And in good movement, you have a number of these stable patterns that are in there that are, uh, let's say, um, very important for structuring from the bottom up the whole movement system. For instance, we've been talking just about isometric conditions in a hamstring. Mm -hmm. Yeah, that means that if your knee angle changes, your hip angle has to change as well. Mm -hmm. So your hip angle and knee angle possibilities are reduced to a certain set, right? Yeah, and uh, that reduces the degrees of freedom of the whole body to move, and then that's connected with other muscles, and they got their own constraints. So and then it it reduces the number of movement patterns that you can do they initially thought that the degrees of freedom was a, a bad thing it was, was not the original concept they were like this is a, like the degrees of freedom is we don't like like the initial old school thought process they were like uh, when, when when people thought it was a, a, a top-down approach they were mm -hmm. like oh degrees of freedom and then they realized well, degrees of freedom is is an excellent thing to have because it allows the system to to have more variability in the movement yeah, exactly, and, and it, it solves a lot of the uh, control issues like uh, with synergies, yes. you know, that's why you have so many muscles. Yeah. You can build synergies that are very easy to, um, to, to give commands to, and they solve all kinds of problems with, with uh, context-related variability and things like that. So uh, the self-organization bottom-up is key, is key. Yeah. and in high-intensity movement, uh, it's it's absolutely key that you get your stability where you need to have that stability. Yeah, because that's, and, and, and then what 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 is emerging is a kind of a tractor fluctuation landscape mm. in which you have as much stability as possible, and you have just enough variables or fluctuations, things that can change all the time, that you can adapt to the environment, yeah. and that's good movement. And, and you kind of spoke about this kind of. In later chapter two, when you spoke about the kind of three main theories of motor of motor control and motor learning, um, mm -hmm. yeah, and and another part of the book you spoke about, yeah, is is it a is it a top down approach? Is it brain centered? Is it central or is it more peripheral? And you were saying that it obviously needs to be both. And with the variability, the the the, the information is too fast for the central system to be able to make uh, a decision. So mm -hmm. so this is why these degrees of freedom are obviously a very important thing. And what I loved in the book was you gave examples like the the baseball player hitting the ball where 
you know his his attractor was his arm position and then his fluctuators were how he could f- side bend his torso and readjust his legs to meet the flight of the ball so it just really brought because sometimes when you read these concepts in more academic papers they don't really give any examples what i loved about your book was you were like saying you know you had these additional information or you also had an example which was fantastic so i really appreciated the, the effort you put in on that yeah well that's what we try to do now try to find more of these uh of these these uh, attractors how they work in reality uh, actually uh, at the moment we're doing a uh, a course with uh, the dutch baseball you know yeah. but we'll get a, a good solid sex set of attractors because if you're coaching and you start to coach a fluctuation as if it would be an attractor like, like you have to do it like this and this and this and you cannot deviate from it, then you're uh, probably breaking down the whole movement pattern. Yeah, yeah. It's with the golf swing, if you start doing, let's say, very strict instructions of the begin, beginning of the swing, so when you bring the, the club back, you know, where you should be, what the position should be, you take away the possibility to self-organize the whole swing, because yeah. that should be very variable. Yeah. You know? So you have, to, you have to know what has to be uh, an attractor, so stable, and uh, along certain principles, and what is the part that you should be able to vary. Yeah, uh, and that's something I'll, I'll touch in in a second because you, you brought up the concept of this uh, knowledge of results and the yes. idea of the idea of too much intrinsic feedback not being or extrinsic feedback not being a good thing, and you know wanting the person to be more again as you said self organized. But just be, before I get to that, in chapter three again with the the analyzing sport movement. You brought out these uh, eight concepts, I believe. I think I said seven around. It's eight. Yep. Um, and maybe just we'll touch on these briefly. So you were just saying in terms of self-organization uh, when you're moving in terms of uh, um, linear speed or multi-directional speed. You spoke. You spoke about these might be certain sort of attractors that you might want to see. So the first one was like the lock position of the hip. Do you maybe want to touch on that? Yeah. Well, um, lock position of the hip means uh, very simple. If you co-contract all the muscles around the hip, mm. you'll end up in a certain position. Yeah. You'll have a little bit of internal rotation, a little bit of forward rotation, and mainly a lot of abduction. Mm. So the free hip comes up. And uh, the basic idea is that if you're meeting big external forces, like in a jump or in a run, a single leg jump or in a run, then uh, the, the brain cannot calculate what's going on. Ground reaction forces go in front or behind the knee too quickly that it can react to it. Yeah. So the best uh, and most secure way of uh, dealing with it is to, at the end of the push-off, end up with that co-contraction around the hip. Yeah. That's a lock position. Yeah. And a lock position is uh, something you can see everywhere. Uh, good athletes in agility and a sidestep or they use lock positions. Mm-hmm. Um, and it makes motor control easier. Absolutely, yeah. That's one of the eight. The second one was swing leg traction, and, and this is one actually I'd like you to touch on because I, I just I think that was one that I might not fully have have appreciated. So, with swing swing leg traction, what are we exactly looking for here? Okay, so um, let's say um, a uh, fast bowler plants his front foot, a javelin thrower plants his front foot, a high jumper wants to jump, um, somebody's running then uh, the attractor is that uh, you need to have hip extension at the moment moment you hit the ground. Okay. If the hip, hip is not extending, 
then uh, you'll never have enough muscle activity around the pelvis to protect everything. Not Basically, if you don't have hip extension, you don't have any activity in your gluteus maximus. So, are we? Is, is it a lack of co-contraction then? If you don't have extension, it's no. It's it's uh, it's a lack of, of uh, activity in in, in, in the, the big gluteus muscle. Okay. So and that's something you always want to see. Mm. And in, in many cases, for instance, in, in, in fast bowling and cricket, you see people sticking out a leg in front of them and leaving it there. Yeah. And then they hit the ground, and then forces will hit the whole pelvic area, and there's no slings of muscles active enough to protect everything. Yeah. So therefore, before you plant the foot, there always needs to be hip extension. And that doesn't mean need to be much, or and it's very different between one athlete or another. It always needs to be a big extension. Cool. Uh, f the third one was foot plant from above, which I which I thought was very interesting there, uh, because you gave the example of someone making a a cutting maneuver, and it was funny that the kind of slipping in you spoke about was actually something I would nearly see coaches encourage. They you yes, know kind of get that, on get that's in. fundamentally wrong. Yeah, yeah. So, so touching that. Uh, the abstract idea is that if you hit the ground, there will be ground reaction forces, and these ground reaction forces have a certain direction. Mm. And the best way to counteract them is to bring the foot in along the line of this ground reaction force. Mm. If there's an angle between the ground reaction force that will occur and the trajectory of the foot, then you are slipping in. And the basic idea is that if you're slipping in, you cannot uh, counteract these forces properly. Mm. It's something, uh, for instance, in, in in high jump, which is 90% of the high jump. How in the last three steps, uh, mainly the penultimate step and the takeoff step, you plant your foot along the line of the ground reaction force, penultimate step sideways, uh, takeoff uh, step uh, in front of you, and then it's, well like in Germany is the same, it's not about how you hit the ground, it's how the ground hits you. Yes. And that, that's, that's a very basic uh, principle. Right. Yeah, because that that was one where I was like, "Oh, this is this is definitely something that, that I would have had a wrong thought process on." Because I suppose from I would have been very influenced by Exos and the idea of you know inside edge force reduction, outside edge, and probably there still is times for that. But the way you show the guy cutting, you know, as I said, I've seen coaches who would encourage you know be on the inside edge where you're kind of saying that's distributing the forces not in a favorable way. So it was a very interesting idea to plant the foot from above. And it, it, it applies in, in many more situations than you think. Mm. For instance, if you look in baseball, there's this institute called toe touch. So if you're batting, you're stepping out, and the front foot needs to touch with the toes first, right? And there's no biomechanical reason for it other than it forces you to plant your foot a little bit more from above. Yeah. If you plant your heel, uh, first thing you do is planting your heel, you're not going to hit properly. Yeah. So uh, that's where, uh, where, where, where it's effective. Uh, I know Gary Winkler in the US, he used it, with, he used it a lot with hurdling. Mm -hmm. It's crucial in hurdling, but he even used it in shot putting and uh, it, with, with great effect. So it's a very universal concept. If you're a badminton player and you have to lunge to get to a ball, you have to plant your foot from above. You shouldn't slip in. Absolutely. Great stuff. Positive, uh, positive running position was number four. Uh, positive running means that um, if you're, let's say, look at the toe-off position, yeah, uh, and you look at the position of both thighs, mm -hmm. yeah, and you would dissect the angle between the both thighs and you, take, you draw the resultant, 
that that result that needs to point forward. Yeah. And if that doesn't point forward enough, and there's little individual difference, but the most interesting thing is within an individual when he's in shape and out of shape, yeah, then you all will see that uh, performance goes backwards. Wow. For instance, uh, uh, biomechanist from Finland told me that he had been looking at all the races of Carl Lewis and that uh, when Carl Lewis run his best times, his knee of his stance like would not travel as far behind the hip as it does when he's in shape. It's with acid for Powell, it's very, very obvious when he is in, in shape, you know. Uh, his knee stays underneath his hip, doesn't travel behind his nip, so hip, so he's more positive. And when he's off, like when he's choking, and uh, he's quite a choker, then his knee travels further behind the hip than uh, he normally would. Yeah. So it's, a, it's a, a kind of a concept that is crucial for, uh, let's say, optimizing your anatomy because it, it keeps your muscles within their optimum length at toe off uh, and that is beneficial for uh, for running but it's also a position you need to have in a sidestep and so on and so forth yeah no yeah because you gave a sidestep and that was a great thing too like just for anyone listening it's it's not just track references that franz makes he does a lot of uh, team sport references like in a lot of these instances he's shown that uh, guys doing agility drills or change of direction drills and how these concepts feed into that so that's again yeah. I, I really appreciate that you went through this effort to like give real world examples because it made the learning of the material so much so much easier yeah. um keeping the head still and I, I was happy with this one so i was like this is one i do and the kind of one you gave was a, a bit of a shuffle uh, keeping the head still but you, you put this down as an attractor yes um so in in good movements um basic the main goal of good movement when you're running or many other, uh, let's say, uh, patterns is that your head displacement is minimal. Mm. And uh, one of the reasons that your head displacement has to be minimal is that each time your head goes up and down, you have to recalibrate your vision and you lose about 120 milliseconds. So uh, when you're running on rough terrain and your head would follow the, the up and down of the terrain, you could not uh, take in the sensory information the way you would. Yeah. And um, it's uh, very similar in, in many, many movement patterns. It's very much geared to uh, keeping the head still when you're moving. Uh, it's something you see in animals as well. Uh, and then, since it's such a very important attract, you can turn things around. You could coach people on keeping the head still and then the rest of the movement pattern will self-organize itself better. Um, upper body first, that was, that, that was an interesting concept, upper body first, that was your sixth one. Yeah, well in many, uh, let's say, change of directions kind of patterns, um, uh, you need to talk with your upper body, uh, preferably even before you hit the ground, yeah. so turn the body into the direction you want to go. Uh, in core movement, you often see that uh, the body is a kind of a passenger, mm. a tourist. Yeah? The pelvis turns to the direction you want to go, and then the upper body stays where it was, and then you cannot have the tension in your body to propel force down to the ground as you like. So we use uh, the concept of upper body first in stop and goes and so on and so forth. Yeah, and it's, it's uh, a few. Uh, there was a few. Obviously, there was a few times reading the book. 
going through the book and I was just kind of putting my head in my hand shaking and going I think I do that but there was a few times I was like oh I do that so I think and upper body first is one thing I would encourage yeah because we Congratulations. all yeah. so so keeping the head still and and, uh, and upper body first were, were uh, so um, there, there's a few things because I I was getting this idea of geez if Fran saw me training athletes he'd be shaking his head but maybe just one or two things he'd go there's hope for you still there's hope for you still uh, extending the, the the trunk while rotating, which which in my sport is actually a big thing in Gaelic football or hurling because it's a big rotation sport and it's a running dominant sport. So this was a, a good one for me too. Yeah. Well, last year uh, I worked um, uh, for Japan Rugby hmm. in the preparation of the World Cup, and uh, the key concept that then Eddie Jones wanted to get across was that uh, across the board, in the last ten years. Uh, attack has gone backwards and uh, we wanted our players to be better than anybody else at running change of direction decision making mm. and one of the key concepts is that if you're running in a certain direction and you rotate your upper body away that you would want don't want to compromise your running so you want to be able to maintain the running pattern into the direction that you want which means that your pelvis should not rotate away from the running direction. Yeah. And if you want to control muscles in a way that they can keep the pelvis in the right position, you need to extend your uh, spine when you rotate. And uh, obviously that everybody can do it a little bit, but you can put it under pressure, and even more pressure, more pressure, pressure. So you have to catch pass, or you have to run and, and, and look over your shoulder for a ball that you need to catch. Yeah. Uh, and then if you want to maintain that pelvis posi pelvic position you need to be able to extend when you rotate just on some of these positions uh, Franz, obviously motor control is a huge thing but do you do anything to like take mobility issues off the table so like you know in instance say with a guy who's rotating there and, and he's not doing it and you know we may be thinking we may go straight to a motor control fix kind of looking at contextual movements what, what like do you do you do anything to rule out that hold on i need to rule out that this could be no, obviously that can be um that can be uh, uh structural issues that you have to address mm. so if somebody doesn't have thoracical uh, flexibility enough to rotate and he has to flex in order to rotate his trunk away then you got an issue that you have to fix. Yeah, and you if would, somebody you would cannot, has, doesn't have proper hip extension, yeah. Yeah, then uh, a lot of things become completely impossible that are attractors. Yeah. So uh, sometimes you have to work structurally. Mm. But uh, if you got a structure right, it doesn't mean that you get your attractors right. Mm. If you get a structurally wrong, then it always means that you cannot get your attractors right at all. Which actually brings me to a point, and a little bit back to chapter one in your book, which I, re I really loved, when you kind of were saying, you know, you go to a physical therapist environment and they put you in these very controlled, low-velocity type exercises, and all of a sudden they think that this is going to transfer to someone's sport. So my, my point here is that, like, for instance, you just said, okay, someone could have issues with thoracic rotation in extended the trunk while running or an issue in hip extension. And the classical thing to do would be, okay, let's do loads of T-spine mobility and loads of, like, quad stretching off a bench in a gym. And it's like, yeah, but if you don't put that into now a new coordinated pattern, it's not going to be a new attractor model. Would you? No, it's not automatic. You have yeah, to. Yeah. So if you say, okay, first we have to uh, get these uh, structural things in place. Hmm. Your next thing is that you have to put it into a pattern. 
Mm. So, for instance, if you take hamstrings, uh, especially with young younger players, you will find that the hamstring swing is okay, but they don't use their hamstrings at all in running. Mm -hmm. Switched off. Yeah. So then you can do strength training until you're blue in the face, but you have to, let's say, implement it into running patterns. Yeah, yeah. And it goes for many, many, any of these uh, issues. Because just intuitively, my background obviously is in track and field, but I'd like to think that it's kind of like Benjamin Franklin, common sense and so common, but I'd like to think that I kind of have a bit more common sense sometimes. And what I mean by that is I constantly see these guys pulling hamstrings and they go to these physiotherapists and the physios would think they're doing world-class rehab because they do single leg deadlifts and kettlebell swings and they're not doing leg curls on machines, so they thought they were ahead of everyone. But my, my point was like they keep injuring their hamstrings when they run. Like we need to do something about their run. Well, if, if you look at hamstrings, uh, for instance, you do a single leg kettlebell, uh, uh, what is it called? Uh, single leg deadlift or kettlebell swing? Or? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Then the forces on the hamstring are minuscule. Compared to, yeah, yeah. That's ridiculous. Yeah. You know? If you look at uh, what we do in, with hamstrings, forces that we do in, in pure recruiting are very, very high. And then we look at the running pattern and say, okay, why is this hamstring not functioning in a running pattern? Mm -hmm. I know of 10 times it's because pelvic control is off. Mm. And if pelvic control is off, all kinds of weird shear forces go to the hamstring. The hamstring says, uh, okay, that was it for me. Let the adductors do it. I'm <laughs> off. I'm out of here. And then I'm out of here. And then the hamstring doesn't meet any eccentric forces anymore because it's not active. Yeah. And then you've got one breaking step and it has to step into the movement pattern and then it goes bang so you have to look at proper recruitment mm. yeah that basically is, is is too low in many exercises the only good thing I think see in, in Nordics is that it has very high recruitment but there's other ways to do it better and then you have to make sure it starts functioning into a running cycle again yeah absolutely and then the the final eight uh, one you talk about was a uh, Distributing pressure with deceleration, and you kind of spoke about the co-contractions and uh, by utilizing the different angle of the upper body for deceleration. So maybe just kind of touch on that. Uh, well, one very important principle in in uh, good movement, and that's a kind of an abstract attractor, is that you try to divide the pressure uh, in your body over as many joints as possible. Yes. And if there's one joint that that has a peak force to cope with, then you have to dissipate that peak force away from that position. Mm -hmm. And the only thing that can do it is uh, uh, muscles that are active. And for instance, if you take the knee, uh, there's research out now by Ben Circle who shows that uh, being very strong in your quadriceps is important, being very strong in your hamstring is important, but much more important is to take your co-contract. Yes. And then if you can hinge at the hip, and you can have your upper body move forward when you make a breaking step. Yeah, then uh, you can dissipate that energy away from the knee to a part of the body that can cope with it. So if you see um, ACL injuries without uh, contact, so non-contact ACL injuries, it's almost all the time the same pattern. Somebody wants to make a breaking step, and instead of going forward with his body, he lifts his upper body up, and then if he rotates away from stance lag then bang goes the, the ACL yeah. so this this system in which you can dissipate energy away by co-contractions to another part of the body is switched on 
absolutely brilliant stuff uh, chapter four you, you spoke about fixed principles of training and um i mean with this whole book there's so many things but i just want to get definitely these big things uh, ticked off and uh, you spoke about this on jeremy's podcast too um this idea of uh, in, in intention to action the intention to action model so maybe if you can introduce that to our listeners what do you mean by intention intention to action well, um, I think it's it's very well recognized now that um, movement patterns are organized, uh, starting with uh, designing the intent, the intention, uh, the future state you want to reach, mm-hmm. and that then uh, from that there's not a next step being what muscles have to do with, but there's a, a number of steps in between, which makes the selection of muscles very very flexible. So. Intentions, especially with low speed, uh, low intensity movement, can be uh, achieved using multiple different sets of muscles. Yeah, and uh, that's a very, very important feature of, uh, of movement. Mm-hmm. Because if uh, we had a very rigid set of muscles that we needed to do, uh, use for for a certain intention to reach certain intention, we couldn't be flexible if the environment changes. So I couldn't uh, walk up a flight of stairs with uh, carrying something under my arms, you know, because if I do that, I have to change to different sets of muscles and so on. So uh, all movement is, is uh, organized in that direction, from intention to action. And then it's very obvious that all movement that doesn't have an intention is lost in the system. Uh, and this this is your argument against conventional strength training, or, or one of the many, that there is no... This, that, that many of these exercises don't have a, a nice, uh, a very clear distinction between getting it right and getting it wrong. Yeah, yeah, big time. At least not in a way that the body is interested in. Yeah. Uh, another fascinating area in this chapter, again, chapter four, the fixed principle of training. Um, and I actually had to read through this one or two times because when it's when it's seven a.m. in the morning on the bus and it's a crowded bus and you're being rocked around, I'm like, I think, am I taking this in or am I not taking this in? Uh, but the augmented uh, knowledge performance and knowledge results, I really enjoyed this whole concept throughout the book. Um, and just a quote you gave from Ga- Gabrielle Wolf on page 150 was, well-intentioned but misapplied expertise can often be damaging. <laughs> I thought that was a great little quote. Uh, but you, you spoke about this idea of intrinsic versus augmented feedback and the idea of the knowledge performance versus knowledge results. Can, can you maybe touch on uh, KP? KP yeah, well, uh, I think what most people know by now is that... Um, External focus cues are better than internal focus yeah, cues, yeah. right? And I uh, think Gabriel Wool is quite rigid in that. Mm. Uh, I took it probably one step further. Is that if you look at it a bit more from a dynamic systems point of view, then you have to look at cause and effect, and then you have to say, okay, let's replace external focus cues to do effect cues, mm-hmm. cues on the effect of what you do. And let's replace internal focus cues to the cause of what you do, yeah. Yeah, way you do it. And then you can say it's also possible to have intrinsic knowledge of result cues. Yeah, I love that concept. Because they are the effect of something that else happens somewhere else in the body. Yes, yes. And you get rid of this very rigid, it has to be outside of the body, it has to be inside of the body. Yeah. And uh, in movement patterns everywhere, Everywhere you can see that people are looking for intrinsic knowledge of results. Yes. Uh, let's say uh, information. Uh, yeah. For instance, if you look at baseball, that's a, a very nice example. And you see a catcher throwing a ball to 
second base. And if it's a very, very good catcher, he will tap with his mint against the ball before yeah. You mentioned this shows. in the book. Right. Yeah. You see that? Huh? Yeah. So he taps against the mint. And why is he why is he doing that? Well, what you need to do if you throw a ball, you have to rotate your shoulders. Yeah. You have to throw, rotate your throwing shoulder back and the other one forward. Now if you just before you throw, tap with your hand against the ball, that's a guarantee that your shoulders are in the right position. So the fact that you can tap is knowledge of result for the process, the, the action that your shoulders need to rotate properly. Yeah. And even with very experienced uh, baseball players that don't even need, need it, that information, they're still seeking that information because it's making uh, movement control much easier. And therefore, this intrinsic knowledge of results, uh, I call them beacons, uh, Professor B calls them anchors, uh, they are uh, key to uh, motor control. Yeah, and you gave a you gave an example on page one five seven of a baseball player, but also the hurdler, and his his intrinsic knowledge result was on that toe off, as he just went to the next into the next hurdle, um, so that like they were, and he actually have it written here beacons. Uh, head head position after landing second hurdle, there is a variation in the execution of movement between the beacons, and you gave this kind of idea of a lot of variation. Then there's this bit of stability, a lot of variation, and a bit of stability, and a bit of stability was yes, exactly. And that's, for instance, um, uh, what, what Gary Winkler started to use in the U.S. with his elite uh, hurdlers, wow, yeah. world-class hurdlers, and uh, he started to work basically with uh, foot plans from above as an intrinsic knowledge of his own beacon. Yeah? And then uh, if you add uh, to that as well some information about keeping the head still after the hurdle, then uh, his observation was that you don't ever have to say anything about how you negotiate the hurdle itself. So mm -hmm. the movement you make uh, when you're going over the hurdle will self-organize. Fantastic stuff. So that's the way the body always tries to uh, reason back from the results to how we should get there. Um, another uh, area in this book, I, I found this area, there, there was actually something you said in this particular sentence it's on page 163. Um, it actually starts on page 162, 442 is where it starts, and it's called Veritability and Monotony, and this idea of the role of motivation, and, and you quote, this is a quote from your book, motivation is a basic condition that must be met if the organism is to learn, and then this comes into your idea that training has to be veritable. Um, I thought that was just a fantastic line, so maybe can you speak about why it's so important to have veritability and, and this idea of veritability and monotony? Well, there's... there's um Let's say there's two reasons why you need variability. Yeah. Okay, the first one is that the body is not interested in motor patterns that it can be using as a one-off. Mm. That only in certain situations, and it's only interested in motor patterns that are uh, universal. Because if you give a preference to universal motor patterns, you don't need to store too many motor patterns, yeah. and you can easily retrieve it. Yeah. So. Uh, that's one reason why you need um, you need uh, variability. The second reason you need variability is that the system doesn't want to learn. It needs to be triggered to learn. And it's only triggered by things that are new. Mm. So things that, I, that you are familiar with. You know, that's what I call monotony. Things you're familiar with. The system doesn't perceive that as something that uh, it should use for getting adaptations. So in fact, the system should almost panic into adaptations. 
and uh, if you have been lifting 100 kilos for for ages, and then you say, okay, now we do 105, then the system says, well, what's the difference? Hmm. You know, I won't do any adaptations for that. Yeah, yeah. So it's not interesting. So that's that's two main reasons. Uh, the system is conservative, wants to know exactly what it will benefit from making adaptations. Then if it's convinced, it will make adaptations. Uh, chapter five then is specificity within strength yeah. training, um, and you talk about the specificity in transfer of training. You have a, you have a pair. A, a five five two is titled the limited transfer of strength and power. Do you maybe want to touch into that? Um, yeah. Well, if you look at um, let's say the features in in strength training that uh, the situation you're in when you're having a bar on your neck. Yeah. And you want to see what components are specific to running, jumping, and so forth. Then the strength training setting is a setting in which uh, there is very few components that can be linked to movement patterns on the field. Mm -hmm. Therefore, in strength training, uh, the problem of being specific and having transfers is massive. Yeah. And it's, uh, let's say, in classic strength training, there's so many uh, so-called guarantees transfers that in reality are not happening. Yeah, yeah. It should be a key issue in designing a strength training program if it's sport specific. Yeah, it's yeah. It's just an assumption that, that we, we've kind of like it's it's been said. It's like I think a myth said so many times becomes the truth that people are like this. This transfers. This transfers. But from obviously a contextual and motor control standpoint it, it has yeah well, you can you can put it in a bit of a bit broader perspective if you look at training theory mm. yeah then a training theory there should be there should be uh, books thick as a brick on specificity yeah and there's nothing yeah. there's absolutely nothing you know there's some some vague assumptions and some there's no proper research uh, no proper uh, let's say summation of uh, how this specificity matrix actually is structured because we all sense and know there is a structure of specificity some movement patterns are related are less related and so on and so forth you know we can see that uh, somebody who's good to, uh, with the tennis racket give him a hockey stick and he can hit a ball yeah. but there is in training theory there is no good structure of it there's a little bit about close skill to open skill and there's a little bit about this and a little bit of that but if you look at it it's ridiculous, and that means that training theory is an absolute uh, infancy in that respect. Yeah, yeah. Just uh, going back to the concept, or I don't actually know if we touched on the concept, but the you, you mentioned obviously the term muscle slack an awful lot, and for myself now I'm I'm well aware of what muscle slack is, but you you I've heard you previously say that you you abolish counter movements because of, of muscle slack so maybe just for the listeners briefly just touch on exactly what is muscle slack and this idea of not using counter movements yeah so um, a muscle that is not active um, let's say if the attachment points are 20 centimeters apart yeah. then the length of the muscles not necessarily is 20 centimeters yeah. but it could easily be 25 26 centimeters mm -hmm. Just a number, yeah. yeah. So a muscle is hanging like a slack rope between two attachment points, and then if you um, want 
the muscle to start applying force on the attachment points, there's a lot of things that need to happen. So the muscle needs to line up, yeah, uh, needs to be uh, tensed enough, and then force is applied on the attachment point. And uh, that concept of slack, which is not well understood yet, is uh, probably the most important factor in performance. If you have a lot of slack, you know, before a muscle becomes active, then force production is delayed up to 300, 400 milliseconds. Wow. So uh, getting rid of slack is a key factor. Yeah. And the easiest way to get rid of it, there's two easy ways of getting rid of slack. One is just putting the attachment points further apart. That's a counter movement. Yeah. And the second one is putting a bar in your neck because Please the weight of the bar will give tension in the muscles. Yeah. And uh, if you do both concepts a lot, yeah, then the body is not saying, okay, I want to reduce muscle slack. Say, oh, I can have more. Because I'm always in a situation that I can do a counter movement or have a heavy weight in my neck. So if you're in a sport in which time pressure is big, so you only got one tenth of a second to get it right, then you should not facilitate the system with counter movements. Mm -hmm. And you should be very aware that uh, weight training is increasing uh, muscle slack. So weight training is uh, making rate of force development go backwards. Yeah. That's what it says. Yeah, it's yeah, actually, it says it doesn't yeah. because the research, the rate of force of the development is always against the resistance and never they measure it against uh, a lower absent resistance. Yeah. So that means that if you want to prepare somebody for being very explosive uh, off the bat without very much resistance, so you have to accelerate a hockey stick or whatever, or the second and third step out of the blocks, then <clears throat> you should not facilitate in training all the time with a counter movement. Yeah. And there's nothing easier than forbid any counter movement. Uh, and actually on page and this is back to chapter 5 too you, you address these concepts on page 187 uh, you say muscle slack is one of the most performance determining factors in, in uh, highly uh, in high movement uh, specificity and you also spoke about that too in terms of rate of force development you were saying the way in which strength is built up in such situations may be fundamentally different than the rate of force the rate of force development without much external resistance the fundamental difference is so great that measuring rate of force film with resistance cannot simply assume that it's anything about rate of force without resistance. So that, that was very interesting too. Exactly. We just finished a, a review article on rate of force development. I wrote it with a self, a former student of me, and he did all the dirty work again. <laughs> and I told him, listen, you have to look at all the researchers out there. And one of the key things you have to look at is what specific uh, resistance are they using to measure rate of force development. And out of 270 papers, there was only one paper that mentioned what uh, resistance they used. So it's completely overlooked that the resistance against uh, which you're, uh, let's say, um, applying this, uh, your force and, and, and are measuring what rate of force development could be crucial. Hmm. And it's absolutely crucial. Yeah. Because if uh, you look at a force velocity curve or a power curve, at the far end of high velocities, you know, it becomes completely erratic. It's not a nice line that 
know, there's no connection anymore. So uh, if you are in a sport, you're a tennis player, and you have to accelerate your tennis racket, and you start measuring rate of force development against a uh, 30 kilo resistance, or even worse, against a, uh, a fixed bar, you know, isometric pulls, then you don't get any reading that has any any bearing with the problems you have to solve when you have to accelerate the racket. Which which kind of would bring into question then how valid is velocity based training then you know because that's the big thing lately is looking yeah. at all these bar speeds. Shit. <laughs> <laughs> Brian Mann would be delighted to hear that. What? Bro, Brian Mann. Well, Brian Mann is uh, he's kind of the guy that that the go-to okay. guy for velocity-based training. So, but he he's really open to everything. So he'll he'll be. A, the, 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 uh, you, obviously, you can use these philosophies. Absolutely, absolutely. You can do this, but you should not come to the conclusion that if or against the resistance are better at uh, accelerating or, or rate of force development. It will work if this resistance is different. It's yeah. much more. Absolutely, I guess. that's that's a, a, a crucial. That's a, a crucial thing that people need to understand. Yeah. Coordination with low resistance is completely different than when there's uh, a substantial resistance. Absolutely. Um, just one or two more things, Franz, and, and then I'll, I'll let you go if you have the time. Yeah. Um, uh, continue on there, Chapter 5. I really love this section, Categories of Specificity. And you gave these five categories. Um, one was similarity in the uh, inner structure of movement, which was intramuscular coordination and inner muscular coordination. Then we had similarity in the outer structure of the movement, similarity in energy production, similarity in sensory patterns, and then finally similarity of intention of movement. And you're kind of uh, in the summary of that chapter, you were saying that the similarity in intention of movement is probably one that most coaches don't even consider, and it's probably one that we benefit more if we thought about it more. Yes, if you're, uh, let's say, if you agree that movement control is based on an intention to action model, yeah. then uh, obviously similarity and intention is very, very important for the system. Very important. And if you uh, don't consider that, yeah, then, uh, or you have exercise without an intention, then the system does not know how to fit this in the whole. Uh, let's say matrix of uh, of, of specificity mm. where in, intentional uh, beings our movement is based on uh, on goal setting mm. and, and reaching those goals so uh, that's why this is a, a very important step within this uh, five categories of uh, specificity and once again also my definition of specificity is fairly primitive you know that should be people should laugh about that in ten years time or twenty years time yeah. and come up with uh, much more refined systems. Yeah. So just just if if we were to summarize that is in terms of specificity because one thing you actually said about the like the the, the similar energy systems you uh, you were saying that that's probably the least the, the least most important out of the specificity buckets if you like in terms of transfer is. Is the motor coordination the most important thing out of all specificity? Uh, I would say so. Yes. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Because you, you get a lot of people, you know, again, they'll say like, 
you know they'll look at a you know conventional uh, strength movement and as you said this is the flawed concept that this is sport specific because it'll transfer it's the same as you said and I know you've already kind of put a nail in this coffin because it's the same biomolecule quality we're working on max strength or explosive strength or starting strength and they'll say this is specific it'll transfer to sport and you're like there's no way to prove that and second of all it's not how the body works in terms of complex uh, biological systems um but definitely and you're kind of making the argument that the, it's more to do with the coordination that the coordinate if the, if it if it doesn't tick a coordinated box it's not going to transfer exactly yeah, yeah. so for instance uh, i have a lot of experience with people who uh, have done a lot of uh, two double leg squatting yeah, yeah. Uh, they're all very poor on one leg. Uh, my high jumpers, we did everything on one leg, and they were very poor on double leg squatting. Yeah. They're massively strong on one leg. So uh, there's two different uh, coordinative patterns, and already there are big gaps yeah. in how, let's say, the transfer would be. And let alone if if the, the whole pattern becomes more and more complex, mm. the system is too refined for that. The, the the other uh, chapter six I'm on here now overload and strength training and I love this picture on figure six two on page uh, one uh, thirty uh, sorry two thirty one and you speak about this overload versus specificity or overload variation versus specificity yeah. and this central versus peripheral model and yeah. you also introduce the concept that hey overload is not just about adding more resistance it's not just quantitative. If you add variability, that technically is overload, and you can have a qualitative overload. Can you maybe just touch on that? That was so interesting. Yeah. Well, um, again, it's um, based on the only thing that's interesting in training is the adaptations, right? And um, if the adaptations are basically uh, in the field of coordination, mm. and uh, the system is sensitive to new movement patterns, then uh, overload, which is just a numeric uh, thing, could be replaced by something you've not been familiar with. Yeah. So that's why I replace it with uh, with variation. And then you have specificity, uh, and you have overload, and both are requirements for the system uh, before it wants to adapt. So you have to convince it that it fits in the, into the existing matrix of specificity, how movements are connected. And you have to convince it that it's universal. Therefore, you have to vary things all the time. And those two are antagonistic in a way. So it's a kind of a safety device within the learning system that not just anything gets cluttered into the memory. Yeah. So you have to convince actually two things that are antagonistic, that it serves both things at the same time. It fits into the matrix of specificity but also tuned, it's, it has a universal application. And then you can, um, uh, uh, let's say, learn. And then it's interesting that I've never come across an exercise that has very high specificity and at the same time uh, a big kind of overload. Yeah. Yeah, you spoke, you spoke, yeah, you spoke about that. You said the more specific it is, the, the less you'll be able to overload it, generally. Yeah. Yeah. But in terms of just going back to just conventional strength training, we'll just call it that for now. Because again, most people look at that and say, "Oh, this is going to transfer." But could we, could 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 we, from your thought process, step back and say, "Is that nearly variability now in training?" Because it's so unlike, like you know, if if we're getting too specific, 
could could that nearly just be yes you have to be able to to use the whole spectrum very high specificity with very little variation in there yeah to medium specificity with more amount of overload variation yeah up to where you have very high overload variability to very limited specificity and, and so high jumpers we did a lot of maximum strength training yeah yeah so that, 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 that and it's great because now that that clears a lot of things in my head yeah. um, because it, that, that is essentially what you were trying to get with that that kind of figure was that at the very end of this continuum you can have a lot of overload with exercises that aren't specific at all and it's given us a bit of variation and then when we're getting to more specific things the overload has to be less yeah, yeah so that's that one, one very important thing if you go to this very high uh, overload uh, uh, side of the of the of the, the illustration. Yeah, there has to be some specificity See in it. Yeah, okay. So that's gone. You know, you got nothing. Yeah, you have to multiply the two x. So it's a it's just more of a continuum. Like the, a tread exactly. of it, a tread of it has to be in it all the time from one end to the other. Yeah. yeah. And what you see with with uh, coaches that are not so experienced, they either are very much at the specificity end. Yes. Very much on the overload end, and uh, what I would like to suggest is to go in the middle as well okay you know experience those uh, qualities and those exercises yes 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 that makes a lot of that makes that that makes a lot and just maybe just to fully cement that in my mind if you are at the very overload end you still obviously are thinking all right i'm overloading here it's not a specific but i still do want that hint of specificity in it so maybe with your high jumpers it was heavy low but was it on one leg say for instance rather than two legs yeah. So uh, and and then you have to be really, let's say, precise in in how you uh, evaluate that. Yes. So one thing that we haven't uh, mentioned mentioned yet is is one of the key problems I have with classic strength training that they only talk about positive transfers. Yeah. 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 Uh, there's also negative transfers. Absolutely. So, for instance, if you would do. Um, Power training, so uh, with with fairly high resistance, yeah. Mm-hmm. Then um, they say, see, your power output goes up, and that's it. You also have to look at what the negative sides could be, and if you do power output with with high resistance, rate of force development without resistance goes down. Yeah. So there's a lot of things you have to, let's say, take into account. Yeah. You have to add up the positive effects with the negative effects and so on and then maybe you get an idea of whether you're going forward with your training or you go backwards with your training it reminds me of Dr. Bondarchuk talking about the the shot putters and the, the novice shot putters when their bench press went up a general exercise they got better but the experienced guys when their bench press went up it went backwards yeah exactly and that's that's, that's an issue that in athletics uh, we addressed a lot so if you're in, I know exercises for pole vaulters that are very beneficial if you're a five meters 30, 40 jumper. Yes. But have an adverse effect if you're a five seventy jumper. Amazing. So the difference between elite and sub elite is already that it can have a positive effect for one and a negative effect for the other. And uh, that's another uh, problem I have with, with all these researchers out there. Hardly any of these research papers make a very good definition of the groups they are researching. Mm. Nine out of ten times it's beginners, 
and then when they call it elite, it's not elite. Yeah. For instance, there's a lot of uh, research on uh, rugby players running, and they're called elite. But I work with rugby players and not elite runners. At all, yeah. At best, they are okay runners. Yeah. It's not elite. And uh, even between sub-elite and, and, and real elite, there can be a complete switch on the effect. Amazing. It's very, very fluid. Definitely, definitely, rugby players are, are not elite sprinters. I can attest to that because I've dealt, with, <laughs> I've dealt, I've dealt rugby players here in Ireland too. It's the same with like if, if you saw GA players here, friends, you'd, you'd, uh, yeah. you, you would, you would probably get a small bit of vomit in your mouth if you saw them run. Uh, it's not pretty. But friends, I want to be respectful of your time, so I just, uh, um, I'll probably ask you to come back on when I go, go even, you know, finish the final chapter and even kind of dwell in a bit more, maybe get a little more specific. But one final area I want you to touch on. In chapter uh, six, also overload within strength training, you know, you speak about the constraints led approach. And for anyone that hasn't heard about this before, it's you know, it takes into consideration the organism, task, and the environment. And a very, very interesting part that you bring up was how to manipulate the environment, the task, but also the organism with fatigue, which was very interesting. So m maybe touch into that for us. Um, well, um, so. What a good movement pattern is, is that it's universal, okay? Yes. Um, and it has to be universal when we change the task a little bit, mm -hmm. when the environment is a little bit different, yeah? So if you're a shot putter and you only can uh, execute your technique properly when it's 35 degrees, and when it's uh, 18 degrees you're not proficient anymore, you have a problem. So it has to be, uh, let's say, also robust against changing um, environment and uh, obviously it also has to be robust again to changing body mm -hmm. and uh, fatigue is the quickest change in the body that is existing yeah. so if you do five reps of a, of, a, of a clean the fifth one is done with a completely different body than the first one yeah. right and uh, then you can switch it around you can say okay if you want variability we can use fatigue as a learning tool for the system. And then there's total body fatigue, but you also can work with fatigue that is occurring only in one part of the body. Yes. And, um, and then integrate that into the whole, like fatigue one area. Uh, yeah. So I worked with a 400 meter hurdle runner who was, uh, who was quite good. He was world student champion. And uh, his maximum clean was 75 kilos. Mm -hmm. And uh, he was not happy with it. So what we did was uh, four sessions of 20 minutes, once a week, one session. And what we did was, for instance, uh, take a dumbbell and fatigue one biceps. And then two seconds later, do three cleans with 65 kilos. And then fatigue one leg and do cleans. Yeah? And that's what we did for 20 minutes, four times. So each time he had to clean was with a body he had never seen before, the system never seen before. Yeah. That triggers learning. And then after four weeks we did a new test and you could clean 100 kilos, a jump of 25 kilos. You won't get it all the time, but these things can occur. So the thing is that you're not just giving the information for the system to adapt, you also have to trigger it. Yeah. Yeah. And that's um, something you can you can use in uh, so now we, uh, one of my other former students has done a research in uh, baseball 
with uh, pre-fatiguing exercises and bed speed significantly went up uh, compared to a group that was doing it differently, was doing the, the fatiguing exercise after batting practice. And that could be a very interesting area. You know? uh, no longer see fatigue as the big enemy of learning, but see it as a as a as a very important tool. Yeah, that, that was amazing, and uh, um, that's pretty much it, Franz. Uh, as I yeah. said, as I said to you uh, before, I, I'm currently on. Um, where am I on this? I'm there's 237 page. I'm on page 275, so I'm on the final chapter. So I see. Okay, yeah. I said a little bit and for for my, my my podcast isn't a video so people don't see this but for you guys listening I I showed Fra- we're both face to face here on Skype and I showed Franz his book and I have like these uh these uh, flag stickers and I usually only you know use them very sparingly when I read a book and I was telling Franz I must have gone through two packs of flag stickers already with the the book so it's it absolutely outstanding um and I, again I, I really appreciate how much how much you like. I don't want to insult you by saying simplified because these aren't simple concepts but how you got your point across and you used real real world coaching examples because I don't consider myself very 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 intelligent and I was very happy with how I felt I I, uh, was able to consume the information so I really appreciate this book Franz Um, for me as a coach it it was a huge eye opener and uh, like I I had obviously I was at a seminar before I'd read running before I had some of the idea of the concepts but this really solidified a lot of things in my mind Really wonderful read. Good to hear. Good to hear. Um, so hopefully maybe we we'll get you back on. So Franz, is there any final words you you do you want to part before you want to go? Any contact information? You on Twitter or, or emails or is there any seminars or speaking events you have coming up? Uh, well, in two weeks time is in, J- in Japan. <laughs> if you want to go there, <laughs> and then uh, later on there will be more, but uh, actually. Nothing in, in in Europe at the moment. Yeah, we must get you back to Ireland again, definitely. Um, yeah, I, I should. I I'm, should. I'm sure um, Martin Bingazer or them guys and John, or John you know would be fantastic. I'm gonna put this out here right now. You, yeah. you, John Kiley and Martin Bingazer. That would be an unbelievable. Yeah, yeah. And and maybe Vern Ver- and Gary Winkler. That would be an unbelievable lineup. That would I would enjoy that massively. Yeah, yeah. well, we'll see 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 if we can get that together. And and Nick Nick Winkleman's here in Dublin, so I mean. Yeah, I know. We should yeah, definitely. He's the enemy now, is he? Yeah, he's with yeah yeah he's with he's with the <laughs> Irish. Well, I'm Irish, so he's with the home team, so he is. Uh, okay. So uh, it's absolutely brilliant. Uh, Franz, thanks so much. Yeah, uh, I'll let you know when this goes out, and um, just thanks so much for your time. I really, really appreciate. it I'll just wrap up this podcast and I'll say goodbye. So, guys, uh, Coach Franz Boss, what an absolute legend of a man. Get his two books, Running, which he brought out a few years ago, at Ronald Comp and and. Uh, Ronald Clamp, I should say, and uh, his latest book, Strength, Strength Training Coordination, fantastic, and I'll put links in the show notes. So for everyone listening, thanks so much. Keep sharing the podcast. Take care, and I'll talk to you soon. Stay strong. Mm-hmm.